Hey guys, before we get started, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Simply search for Learn, Educate, Discover on iTunes and then you can hit subscribe. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or a review. It really means a lot. Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. And on today's show, we are going to be talking about real estate private equity. So private equity is an asset class, if we talk about this in the language of finance, which consists of equity securities and debt in operating companies that are not publicly traded on a stock exchange. So as opposed to investing in public companies, as an example, companies like Google or Amazon, these are companies that are not yet public. And on today's show, we are going to be talking about real estate private equity, which is a category of private equity that consists of equity and debt investments in property. So to help us understand this area, our guest on today's show is Zahara Kasam. And Zahara is a hotel asset manager with Marathon Asset Management. She is based out of London and Marathon Asset Management is essentially an investment management company. So what that means is that it is a company that manages the money and investments of its clients. And Zahara's job at Marathon is to oversee the asset management of Marathon's hotel real estate investments in Europe. She's been in this role for about two years now. And prior to this, Zahara was the director in the European Investment Analysis Team at Intercontinental Hotels Group. And here she structured various joint venture and M&A transactions for IHG brands. And before this, she's also spent some time as a microfinance fellow with the Aga Khan Foundation in rural India. And she has also spent some time in Citigroup's corporate and investment banking group. In terms of her educational background, she has a bachelor's in economics and development studies from Brown University and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. So I think today's discussion is going to be very helpful for anyone who is exploring careers in finance and private equity in particular is a highly sought after area within finance. So I really hope that you enjoy today's discussion and find it helpful. And without further ado, let's welcome Sahara to the show. Hey, Zahara. Hi, how are you? Hi, Sonali. Good morning. Good morning to you. Well, actually, you're in London, so it's middle of the day. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for your time. And uh, how are you feeling? I, th- um, I think you know what I'm referring yeah, it's, to. <laughs> it's been an interesting week um, for us here in, in London and in England and in the United Kingdom. So still recovering from the vote that happened on Thursday and watching the Euro football, which is the one bright spot. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar, so we are actually recording this, I think, I guess, two days after the Brexit voting. And maybe you can talk about, especially from your job in asset management, what is your point of view on what this means for UK now going forward? I guess as we saw on Friday, as it became clear that the UK had voted to leave the European Union, 
stocks fell tremendously, the uh, exchange rate fell tremendously, and it's pretty clear that there will be further uncertainty and possibly, probably a a recession um, as we figure out what happens next. Um, So obviously, a lot of us are thinking back to 2007, 2008, 2009, when the last major recession happened and kind of foreseeing a similar pattern um, as we try and figure out a way to navigate the opportunities and the challenges that that come from a recession. So for private equity and, and real estate private equity in particular, there is an opportunity to, to buy low and, and eventually sell um, at higher prices um, provided the, the global market and, and the local market recover by the time you're looking to sell. But from an asset management perspective, this is when asset management becomes absolutely key when when you're going through a troubled market, um, when you're going through a recession, because you're just trying to maintain cash flow from, from dropping as people, well, in, in my industry, in the hotel sector, as consumers start to spend less and as business travel gets put um, on pause for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, would you say that professionally speaking, this is sort of an exciting time for you, professionally speaking? Oh, absolutely. Um, professionally, very exciting. Personally, not so much. <laughs> not so much. I mean, would you consider leaving UK at all? Well, given my pound holdings converted to US dollars dropped overnight by a significant yeah. proportion, I don't think I want to pull my money out just yet. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think this is a great, great backdrop for what you do. So before we get into more details of asset management and real estate private equity, why don't you first just give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and uh, your career path so far? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll preface my introduction by stating that I am very much an anomaly in the real estate finance space in that I didn't launch my career in real estate while I was in university. So my story goes back to when I was two years old. Um, my father moved our family from Canada to Orlando so that he could launch his career in, in the hotel space. And he started out managing a hotel and then eventually managing a portfolio of hotels. And soon after that, my mom and dad went on to own and operate their own portfolio of hotels. So I very much grew up around the hotel business. I learned my maths with hotel P&Ls on the weekends, and I earned my allowance every summer holiday by working on property, um, working at the front desk, working in reservations, working in housekeeping and engineering and sales and marketing. So I got the full breadth of the business um, and very much enjoyed the experience working with my mom and my dad, the conversations that we would have over dinner and on holiday. But by the time I went off to university, I was, I thought I was pretty much done with it. Didn't really want to follow in my father's footsteps and sought to pursue a career in finance instead. And specifically, I was looking to find a career in the financial sector that would help to advance the lives of the poor in low-income countries. Um, so I worked, as you mentioned in your introduction, I worked in microfinance in India, I worked on Wall Street in investment banking, and then I ended up at the UK government's development finance fund in London before going off to Harvard Business School. 
I see. Um, and the best thing that I took from my business school experience was that after various conversations and cases and club activities, that those two years away from from work ultimately helped me to identify where my true passions lay, which was in in the hotel sector. Um, so my first job after business school was at Intercontinental Hotels Group. I, I made a conscious decision to not go the operator route like my father, but instead work in a, in a corporate environment at IHG where we were basically selling franchises for the various brands that IHG owns, um, some of which you'd be familiar with, Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn Express, okay. Intercontinental, and that introduced me to a range of hotel owners, high net worth individuals, sovereign wealth funds, and private equity funds like Marathon, who I ended up doing a deal with. And then they brought me over into into the fund to mm. run the portfolio that they acquired. I see. Okay. And now you, you are a hotel asset manager. Is that your title? Right. Okay. I see. Yeah. So I think, can you just give us like a very brief overview in terms of what is Mar- so Marathon is an asset management firm, correct? Well, it's an investment management fund okay. uh, firm. Um, so it invests money on behalf of various types of investors, predominantly in the global credit and fixed income markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marathon's core competency is distressed and situational investing in credit markets. Uh, a good example on the corporate credit side of our business is. Marathon invested in uh, American Airlines distressed debt when it was going through bankruptcy. And then we worked closely with the company through its bankruptcy and restructuring. And on the back of its merger with U.S. Airways, we were able to benefit from significant returns. In Europe, the major chunk of what we do is commercial real estate, both on a credit and an equity side. Um, So on the credit side, a lot of European banks are still struggling to get rid of non-performing loans that they ended up with following the global financial crisis in 2008. So my team invests in these loan pools at a discount and then works to restructure the loans so we can sell out of them at a higher level. And then myself and, and other members of my team also buy assets directly outright by the equity of those assets. But again, they're usually restructuring slash turnaround opportunities where um, we need to put a lot of work into fixing the operations or reinvesting capital into the building to hopefully sell it at a higher value later on. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would love to get more details of, you know, what is a distressed asset. But before that, so you personally are working in real estate, private equity. So can you please describe for us, sort of give us a very high level overview of the finance industry and where does private equity come in? So just, you know, imagine a listener who has no idea about finance. How would you explain private equity and its role in the overall finance industry? Sure. So I think you recently interviewed Arzan about investment banking, and and I think he did a really great job of explaining the finance industry overall. Um, And he mentioned this distinction between the buy side and the sell side, the sell side, selling research, selling advice and selling securities that it has created to companies and investors. Whereas the buy side represents the buyers, so private equity and hedge funds like Marathon, but also venture capital funds, institutional investors like pension funds, 
sovereign wealth funds, um, like you see out of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Um, All of us who are buying companies, buying assets directly and holding stakes in these companies. And then within real estate finance, you also have publicly listed real estate investment trusts who are buying real estate. So it's not really a private equity fund. Well, (laughs) they're buying assets, private assets, um, but they're publicly listed. So investors like you and me can own a stake in the assets performance without actually owning them ourselves. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So yeah. So like in very, very simple terms. So first of all, you are a buyer of assets. And since you're private equity, you're, you're only owning private assets. How would you describe the business model of a typical private equity firm? Um, Buy low, sell high. Um, (laughs) So the first part of private equity is the origination side of the business. You're looking for great opportunities that are somewhat mispriced so that you can buy at a, a lower price than what you think it's worth. And then the second part is the asset management side where you're looking to really drive outsize growth in the cash flows that forms the basis on which someone will later buy your asset. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So, so what you're saying is at a very high level, there are two key aspects of how a PE firm would make money. One is that you're always on the lookout for finding these great assets which are undervalued, right? So you would you would be assessing that in some way, but identifying these assets that are undervalued. And then you have the asset management piece, which is that now that I've identified this asset and bought it, how can I really derive outside growth from this asset? Right. right. And there's probably a third piece, which is the, the leverage piece. So whether you're a real estate private equity fund or you're buying companies, how you choose to um, layer on debt onto your acquisition is as important as what you do with the cash flows because it helps to drive your equity returns on your exit. All right, so I didn't understand that at all. So can you talk about like what is the meaning of layering on debt on your acquisition? So if you buy something for, let's just keep this very simple. If you buy something for $10, um, but you get debt that will cover $6 worth of that investment, that you made, mm-hmm. you've only put in $4 of Sonali's own money. I see. So if you okay. sell for $20, you return to the bank the $6 that you borrowed, yeah. and the rest of that money is yours. So oh, um, what is that, $14 on the $4 that you initially put in is a much nicer return than putting in 10 and getting out 20 Oh, I see, I see. Okay, that makes sense. And it's I guess it's also a way of de-risking the investment, right? Because it's not your own money. Um, I wouldn't say that because you do owe the bank interest and principal on a regular basis, which makes your cash flow, therefore, all the more important that it doesn't drop below a certain level. So in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, you saw a lot of funds get into trouble because they had over levered, which meant that they owed more interest than eventually they could service because cash flows had dropped so much um, on the back of the recession that we saw ourselves in. I see. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, no, this is very, very helpful. I think this is the best definition I've heard of this space (laughs) in a very long time. So at least I understand it. Okay, so then, uh, all right, so this was a great overview of private equity, right? So finding the asset, then trying to get great growth from the asset, and then also using debt 
in a very strategic way so as to maximize your return now you personally are working in real estate private equity with a focus on hospitality right so can you talk a little bit about this space what are the characteristics of this space sure i mean i guess one thing i didn't mention about private equity in general is that there are a range of strategies that pe funds pursue so venture capital is one where they're investing in early stage companies growth equity is another strategy where you're investing in later stage companies and looking to grow operations and then there's the the LBO mega buyout funds that we're probably all familiar with the the Blackstones and the KKRs which mm-hmm. are the ones who are over levering um, at, at times like we just discussed and it's kind of a it's more of a financial structure return that they're looking for real estate private equity funds just means the strategy is investing in fixed assets and so the more the most popular um hey zahara i think i i missed you for a bit so so you said real estate private equity funds invest in fixed assets or did i miss something yeah okay all right go ahead real estate private equity is not necessarily investing in companies they're investing in the actual buildings that we see all around us so the more popular real estate asset classes are your office buildings industrial buildings like warehouses and factories retail assets like the shopping malls that we go to or the grocery stores mm-hmm. um, and multifamily apartment complexes that that we live in and then more niche asset classes are the hotels that i invest in senior housing is, is growing in popularity as is student housing um, and other types of real estate classes that have kind of grown with the the macro trends that evolve around us. And then within real estate private equity, you've got different strategies. So core strategy is investing in low risk, low return strategies with predictable cash flows. So that's like your office building in central London. Well, I guess now um, your office building in central New York. Um, (laughs) Core plus is moderate risk and therefore moderate return investments where there's some sort of some form of a value added element that's required then there's value add investments which is more high risk and therefore more of a, a high return strategy where you're buying a property to really improve it and then sell it at a gain so this typically applies to properties that have an operational or a management issue um, require physical improvements or suffer from capital constraints. So this really well describes what I do with hotels um, because there's such an operational element to hotels. And then there's also opportunistic and, and debt type of strategies within real estate private equity. All right. So so you basically described three kinds of opportunities in real estate private equity, right? So one is sort of a low slash moderate risk and low slash moderate return. So this could be like an office building in the middle of New York, which you know is going to do well. But at the same time, you probably are paying a lot of money for it. And so the return is also not that great. Right. The the second one uh, is where you have the, the, the asset has some sort of an operational or management issue with it. So you sort of fix it. So what, what is this class called? Value add. So that's the value add. Okay, got it. And that's where you work in right now. Right. Right. And then there's the opportunity. Can you give us an op- an example of the opportunistic uh, asset investment? Sure. That's, that's like when you're building from the ground up. So you're taking on the development risk. Sometimes you're investing in mortgage notes that sit behind an asset as well. Oh, I see. I see. So it's it's almost like you're setting things up from scratch and then hoping 
that that particular asset will do really well okay got it so then uh, yeah maybe you can give us an example of so you said you work in the value add piece right so first of all actually just to clarify your role and tying this to the description of private equity in general are you both on the finding the asset side and then adding value to the asset or are you in one or, or the other I personally tend to spend 40% of my time on origination, finding the asset, evaluating the opportunity, mm-hmm. and then the rest of my time on asset management. But it all depends on the fund you end up going to work for. So if you have a preference for one or the other, or if you want more of a general kind of experience, then it's important to have that conversation with the funds you're interviewing with to get a sense for how clearly structured they are. Like Blackstone, for example, has an origination team and an asset management team. But a smaller fund will probably have a setup like mine where you can play across the, the spectrum Got depending it. on resource requirements yeah yeah so let's talk about so you do both so let's talk about them one by one so first how do you identify these assets that are potentially undervalued so opportunities are either on market or off market <coughs> uh, the sell side in real estate finance that we discussed earlier consists of investment sales brokers and investment banks who are hired to help sellers find buyers So oftentimes brokers will run formal sales processes that are open to the whole market. Sometimes a broker and a seller will compile a short list of potential buyers who they approach. Um, And then, as I mentioned here in Europe, many banks are still trying to sell off real estate that they might have gotten stuck with in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So deals will come via those banks as well or via brokers and investment banks working on their behalf. And then off-market opportunities come via relationships that have just developed within what, at least here in Europe, is a fairly small industry. So having already done a deal or two together, a seller might approach us one-on-one regarding his or her next disposal. As to figuring out where the, the pricing should be and where the value-add opportunities are, I think that's very much a, a function of working with your asset manager who typically knows the the market better um, or is closer to the market and to where operations are kind of fundamentally moving to. And then also using your broker to provide you with insight into where market multiples are currently and how much people are looking to pay. Usually you pay on the basis of last year's cash flow or forecasted cash flow for the year. Um, And then you're just making a bet on where you think you can move that cash flow to over your whole period or where you think the multiple might move to over your whole period. Got it, got it, got it. So this is great. And I have so many questions. So, uh, So first, so you said that right now in terms of sourcing these deals, there's the on market piece and then there's the off market piece. So if you were to just, you know, look back at your own work or you can think of talk about this in general, Uh, How would you sort of split if 100% of the deals are a pie, how many are on market versus off market? Um, I guess I'd say, so we've done five deals, three were on market and then went off market and then we kind of got another look at them and then the other two were on market. Got it. So, I mean, so it's it's more on market then, if you can say that. 
but off market is also an important piece because i mean i'm just what i'm just trying to get at is that do you have to actively maintain a lot of relationships and actively network with these brokers or other key players in the real estate industry just to keep your hands on sort of to get the pulse of these great properties that might be available or yes absolutely um we spend a lot of our time on the phone with with these brokers to to make sure they're keeping us in mind for the next opportunity that's coming to market um lots of conferences lots of industry events the hospitality sector is is well known for lots of fun and entertaining um industry events so it's it's not always uh, a chore to attend these but it is very important for us to make sure that those on the sell side are are up to speed with our strategy and what we're looking for. But it's also equally important for us to maintain relationships with those owners in the space who we've done business with before or who we're somehow connected to, um, to see if we can find opportunities to, to work without getting a broker involved. Right, right. Oh, interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So is it more push versus pull? And by that, what I mean is, is it more a buyer coming to you, sorry, a seller coming to you and saying that, hey, I want to sell this? Or is it also sometimes that maybe your property is not available for sale right now, but you personally consider it to be something which you can add a lot of value to? So then you sort of approached the seller saying that, hey, have you considered something like this? Right. So I'd, I'd say 80 to 90 percent is the first thing you described and the rest is is the latter. Got it. Got it. Got it. OK. And then my follow up question is that can you maybe talk a little bit about what are the characteristics of that sort of hidden gem which might be undervalued? Uh, have you noticed anything? Is there any particular pattern that you look for? Yeah, um, I guess coming out of the financial crisis, a lot of properties were underinvested in simply because of where the previous owner had bought in. Um, they just didn't want to put any more equity into the deal because they, they knew they were going to struggle to get their returns out. So we've done quite well with a portfolio of hotels that just needed some some tender love and care. Um, so we're putting money back into the bedrooms, redesigning the bedrooms so that they look like they're in 21st century rather than the 20th century, um, <laughs> repositioning the food and beverage offering to draw more people in, whether they're guests or whether they're just passing from outside. In other instances, we've had um, investments where there was an opportunity to add bedrooms. So one hotel was running at 85, 90% occupancy on its current rooms available. Um, and so we saw an opportunity where planning permission was already in place to add more rooms, which just means that you can sell more rooms at the rate you're already selling at and therefore accommodate larger groups. It's a beautiful venue for weddings. Um, so we do quite well with with wedding groups. And so now we can just accommodate larger groups of brides and grooms, friends and family. And then there's opportunities where the brand isn't quite right. So hotel brands is an evolving space. Um, there's new brands coming out every day. And then there's also your classic brands, which have been around for decades and different brands and the hotel companies that own those brands provide different strengths and, and value add to your property. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes there's a mismatch. Sometimes you've got the wrong brand in the wrong location. And so we've had opportunities where we can switch the brand and, and therefore drive return or 
switch the brand and therefore move it from a three-star property to a four-star property and therefore move the rate you're able to get for it from a three-star rate to a four-star rate. Interesting. Okay. All right. So if, if I got all the three points, basically there is one kind of value-add activity where you're fixing up the property itself. So change the interiors or whatever you think is the most apt way of increasing its value. The second was it's just the utilization might not be high enough. So it's running at 80% occupancy or whatever. So you think about how to maximize the occupancy. And then the, the third one was you may have to do something with the brand itself or the positioning to attract more people. So uh, so is it always one of these three? Like how do you identify these things that you think would add the most value to the property? Um, no, it's not always these things. There's There's a range of opportunities that exist um, when you're evaluating an investment. Um, And I think it's a a combination of having seen a lot of these investments before and therefore having a gut instinct for where the value is hidden, working with your asset manager who's kind of dealt with the operational challenges over and over in different contexts and can kind of provide insight from an operation and an execution perspective and also working with your hotel management company who's dealing with performance on a day-to-day basis. And, and so they can often see in someone else's P&L where the underinvestment has been or where the costs are too high. So for example, in another instance, we bought a hotel where the previous management company was just spending a lot on operations and there, there just didn't seem to be any reason why their payroll was so high and why they were spending so much on housekeeping and laundry and mm-hmm. sales and marketing. Um, and so we were able to, to really come in and, and refine the cost structure there. Okay. So I think it's, it's a matter of, of, of a team working together to analyze various aspects of the deal. And, and the gut instinct that comes from having seen numerous transactions. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost then, I mean, from what you've described, it's almost as if you, the hotel asset manager, is is like a super expert in hotels. And he or she knows through experience over a period of time, you sort of know where to look and what to look for. And you know how to maximize the value of a hotel or like a hospitality property. So you know, it's just like an expert in any other field, but that's pretty, that's sort of your expertise, right? More than anything. So you know how to make it work in the most efficient way and get the most value out of it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Along with the hotel management company, who's right. a, a big partner in all of this. Yeah. So it's, so you, I'm guessing, and if you were to describe your role, you identify all of these opportunities and then someone else executes them, right? Um, well, so if we talk about the business of hotels just very briefly, so obviously the bricks and the mortar make up the actual hotel, which is a building with rooms that are rented on a daily basis to a wide variety of guests. We've all stayed at a hotel before. So we know most hotels have a restaurant, many offer meeting space. Sometimes there's a spa and other leisure services. That physical building is owned by somebody. So an individual like my father, an institutional investor like an insurance company, fund like Marathon or Blackstone, um, a real estate investment trust or any other number of entities. And then that building needs to be operated by somebody. So I, as an asset manager, I'm not on all 20 of my properties every single day, managing all of the guests that are coming through and how we're getting those guests in and how the rooms are getting clean and how fastly they're getting cleaned and turnover. 
those hotels are, are being managed by, well, historically they were managed by owner operators like my father. So he owned the hotel and he operated it himself or by branded hotel companies like Hilton or Marriott or IHG, where they used to own hotels outright or they managed hotels on behalf of an owner. And in recent past, these hotel companies are moving more towards what they call an asset light strategy. So they've sell, they're selling off the assets that they own directly. Um, and a lot of them are also moving away from managing hotels. So their revenue stream now comes from pretty much just selling their brand under franchising agreements. So they earn a royalty fee by providing the brand and the associated tools that owners are able to use to drive guests through their property. And so this has given rise to a third type of operating model, which is third party hotel management companies. So they operate the day-to-day activities of a hotel from a, an arm's length basis from both the owner and the, the brand on that hotel, okay. if that makes sense. So sometimes you've got three parties at the table, the owner, the management company, and the brand. Sometimes you've got just the owner who's owning it and managing it himself. And sometimes you've got just the owner and the brand who's managing it and franchising it on your behalf. I see. Okay. So you will be working very closely with this group. Um, right. So the hotel asset manager is often there to manage that group of people who sit at the table because there will invariably be a range of conflicts of interest that come up. The hotel asset manager is viewing the investment from the owner's perspective and therefore looking at it from a, a return perspective, whereas the brand obviously wants to spend as much money as possible on the property to help their brand look better in the public's opinion. And the management company um, has a range of conflicts um, in the way they operate the hotel on a day-to-day basis, both yeah. with the brand and with the owner. Yeah, so actually that's a great point. So generally, what is the how are these deals structured, like a typical private equity deal in, a, in the context of real estate? In terms of what I just described? Oh, well, I'm talking more from the point of view of... Um, so I, I guess it's, it's a couple of things, and I'm again, I'm speaking as a layman, but first of all, why would the owner of the property be open to a private equity firm coming in and investing? So what, what, what is their incentive? What are they getting out of this thing? And generally, what is your time horizon? And yeah, so just, just trying to understand how are these deals structured from your point of view and their point of view? Well, the, the owner is the private equity fund. Oh, so you take over the property. We buy the property from the previous owner and then we own it 100%. Gotcha. Okay. And so the owner is looking to get out because they, for whatever reason, are not being able to make a go of it. So they sell it to you. Or they've already made their return by selling it to you. That's how they're going to make their return on the investment or, but they've left some value add on the table for you to, to take on for yourself. Or yeah, they've run out of money and they can't do with it what they initially had planned to do. So they sell it off and, and just take what they can out of their, their investment. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, I see. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And and what's the typical time horizon then for a PE firm? Um, some funds operate on a very short timeline. Those funds are maybe looking at it from a, a financial engineering perspective. 
using leverage like we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. So it might be like a one or a two year horizon for them. For us and for other funds um, that I'm familiar with, it's a five or a seven or even a 10 year horizon. Okay, I see. All right. Yeah, so I think you've given us a lot of great details on sort of the key aspects of this role. Can you walk us through a typical project? We don't have to go into a lot of detail, but how does a typical project start and sort of the key activities that you would engage in before it ends? Um, Sure. So we bought two hotels about a year ago in two regional cities in, in the United Kingdom. We were brought the deal by a broker and bid for it on an open auction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so during that that bidding process, they, typically they give you two to four weeks to form an opinion on your pricing, and then you submit a formal bid offer. And typically you go through two or three phases where the, the pool of um, potential buyers just gets more and more narrowed based on pricing and, and some other factors. So... We went through the various rounds and continued to revise our our underwriting or our assumptions behind our hold period. And so these assets in particular, one was extremely run down um, and had been underinvested in, but it sat in such a great location that it had excellent potential. The other asset was located in a market which had promising growth potential, but we felt that the brand that was currently on it wasn't helping that hotel as much as another brand might be able to help it. Got it. So during these bid phases and during our due diligence and our underwriting, we worked with our hotel management company to identify alternative brands for both hotels, um, had initial conversations with several hotel companies to understand a, what brand they might recommend for these properties, B, what terms they might be willing to offer, and three, what how much capital investment would be required to implement their brands. And then I ran a discounted cash flow analysis on these various brand scenarios to determine which brand delivered the best return on our investment. Um, fortunately, we ended up winning the bid, and then we were able to go ahead with putting that new brand in place by refurbishing the hotels to the extent that was required by the brand. So in one instance, that this required completely shutting the hotel down. For the second property, we were able to operate it like on a 50% open basis. And, and my role in that was looking for the appropriate contractor, um, the interior right. designer, approving the interior design plan, the layout of the public areas, which we were completely restructuring. Um, working with the sales and marketing team um, on pre-opening plans, attending all of the construction site meetings to make sure everything was on time, on budget, and um, navigating any conflicts in terms of timing or budget. Yeah, And we just launched both hotels under the new branding a month ago. So now my job is monitoring performance to ensure that we're getting the uplift that we forecasted and course correcting as we run into challenges to our initial underwriting yeah well, i mean that sounds so interesting so you're almost like the mini ceo of that hotel for that for the duration of the investment and yeah i would like. actually describe asset management as as the ceo oftentimes if you view each portfolio um, of properties or each property 
as its own business with its own strategy and performance potential, the asset manager as the CEO is responsible for allocating a limited supply of capital and time amongst various opportunities Mm. to create the greatest overall return on investment and then kind of managing the various pieces that go into that and the various contributors and stakeholders to that project. Right. Yeah, I mean, that sounds exactly right, at least from what you've described. All right. So uh, it sounds like a very exciting job, actually, now that you've explained it in so much detail. I also wanted to touch upon a little bit of why private equity is such a sought after role, a sought after space to work in, especially for MBA graduates. So uh, maybe you can give us sort of some approximate whatever you remember from your MBA days. So like, how big would you say is a typical HBS class? My year was 990 because it was the the first year after the financial crisis, but typically it's 900. 900. And out of that, how many people generally end up getting into private equity? Um, Historically, it's been about 15 to 20%. I understand that that number seems to be coming down as startups become more popular um, amongst the uh, MBA crowd. But when I graduated, it was 16% of our class went into private equity or venture capital. Okay, so you're clubbing PE and VC together, right? In that Right, so venture capital being investments in, in smaller startup companies and then private equity being investments in, in, in those companies once they've matured a bit and, and established a, a profitable bottom line. Right, right. And can you give us a range of the kind of salary you can expect as an asset? So, I mean, after MBA, would you join as an asset manager or some other role? Um, I think MBAs typically tend to pursue acquisition type of roles at PE funds. So I think salaries that I quote to you or salary ranges will be um, more geared towards the acquisition side of the business. So there is... As I understand it, there is some differential in how asset managers are paid versus the acquisition team because in theory, as an asset manager, your workload is more manageable. Your hours are a little bit less frantic. Um, If you're working on a deal, it's all out, all hours of the the night and the weekend, whereas asset management is a little bit more of a steady job. But I guess coming out of business school, the range, as I understand it, was about one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's your, uh, um, with some signing bonus. Okay. That's your base. That's your base. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then how is the bonus generally computed? Bonuses are, as I understand it, typically anywhere from 50 percent to 200 percent of your base salary, depending on your title um, whether you're asset management or acquisitions, how long you've been there for, how, how well your fund is doing, um, whether it's been a, a good year or a bad year in terms of the macro market. Yeah, yeah, got it. So you could be making straight out of MBA anywhere between like 200 to 300, 400 per year if you combine bonus also. Right. Right. And acquisition side is basically where you're sourcing the deals and, and then completing the deal. For acquiring your assets, right? Okay, got it. Yeah, so you're basically going from deal to deal. I guess there are some classmates of mine who close the deal and then join the board um, of the company that they've acquired. And so they continue to remain involved. But they're probably working quite closely with an asset manager or like in the case of 
KKR, they have a consulting company internally. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, they are the ones who are sort of running this analysis, right, to figure out these opportunities for value addition. Yeah, the operations after acquisition. Yeah, exactly. Okay. What is the career path like? So let's, right now you're an asset manager. From here, where would you go? Or where could you go? (laughs) It's an interesting question. I think... It could very well be a job for life. Um, so okay. you obviously, the more you asset manage, the more experience you gain, the more your gut instinct gets stronger, the more valuable you become. There's also the opportunity to move into operations if if you prefer to be even closer to the assets. Mm-hmm. Consulting companies are often looking for asset managers who understand the nuts and bolts of the business. I think you could very well use the experience to move into an acquisition type of role. Um, I've seen people do that. There's also a lot of the less exciting part of the business is is reporting. Um, But I think anybody who's managed a P&L knows that that's a very important part of the business. But that leads to investor relations types of roles as well. I guess at the C-suite, you're looking more at like a chief operating officer or a CEO type of career path. Oh, I see. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because that is sort of the experience that you're getting right now. So eventually, mm-hmm. that's where you end up. Okay. So then, yeah, I, I would just like to understand sort of what a typical day for you looks like. So you gave us a great overview of this space overall and uh, this job itself. What is a typical day like? What are the kind of things that we could find you working on if we were to bump into you one day? Sure. I mean, I the part of the job I really enjoy is that on any given day, I'm usually juggling 10 different balls in the air. And so it's, it's quite exciting to be able to go from one thing to another rather than spend all day, every day on, on one task in particular. So some of the things that I work on is, as, as I mentioned, uh, part of my role is managing our P&L and, and evaluating performance against the budget that we set at the beginning of the year. So I'm often looking for where are we underperforming and what operational strategy tweaks do we need to make to correct for performance. So while we set a deliberate strategy at the beginning of the year, every day, every week, every month, that strategy is, is up for discussion because the market changes Certain things change around us all the time. Um, and so we just kind of have to remain vigilant of, of what's happening around us and, and why we're not performing the way we thought we would, or maybe why we're overperforming the way we thought we would and how we can do more of that. We're doing a lot of capital expenditure projects across my portfolio. So I'm often on the phone with my property director, with the interior designer, Um, with the guy who does a lot of the cost estimates for us, analyzing if we're under or over the budget that we initially set out before we went into the design period. Again, are we over or under as we get onto site and start to carry out the project that we had envisaged? Um, Are we on time? Why are we delayed? What can we do to speed things up? What can I do to um, help things move more quickly or more smoothly? Yeah. No, that's I guess super helpful. Some other things are, are less sexy, like tax structuring, vehicle structuring. It depends on what fund you work at and how things are structured, but I'm responsible for debt servicing. So ensuring every month that the letter of the loan is being met at all times, which yeah. involves reporting to the bank, making sure the bank's getting paid the interest and the principal that they're expecting 
monitoring our debt covenants, getting the bank's approval for key changes in the business plan. So when we plan to rebrand a property, that's definitely something that the bank needs to be aware of and oftentimes approve of. Um, if we're making big changes to the property, structural changes, again, you need to keep the bank in the loop on that and make sure you have their approval. And then, for example, as of Thursday, a big part of my role, or actually even prior to Thursday, um, it's monitoring what's going on in, in the macro market, federal tax regime changes, reporting regulation changes, macro events like Brexit. So we were putting in place contingency planning long before the vote happened. And now we're kind of just sense checking those contingency plans now that the vote has happened. And, and we're learning more and more every day about what that means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure this Brexit thing is going to, it's, it's exciting times, as you said, for you professionally, at least. So can you tell us that, you know, in your point of view, what do you think are the most interesting aspects of working as an asset manager? Sure. So as I mentioned, um, one in key thing is is kind of playing this role of, of CEO. So setting the strategy, approving budgets, managing a P&L, interfacing and influencing a variety of stakeholders to help you to accomplish your fund's um, main objectives and, and investment returns, juggling these various balls um, in the air on any given day. I That's one of the more exciting aspects of the job, um, for me at least. Yeah. I, I guess because I grew up around my dad who was always on property and dealing with the interesting things about being on property, relating to guests when they'd had a great time, dealing with guests when they had not such, such a great time, but also the mundane things like fixing a toilet when it broke in the middle of the night um, <laughs> yeah. or dealing with particularly vicious guests um, who oh, yeah. just wanted to yell at somebody. Can you- that's the part I don't have to deal with as an asset manager that's left to the, the management company and the general manager to kind of deal with. So sometimes it's nice to be a step removed from the day-to-day management of the property and yeah, to take more from an us, owner perspective. Yeah. Can you give us an example of, uh, this, this, I don't know how much this is to do with real estate, private equity, but I would love to hear an example of some like crazy guest that you may have had to deal with. Is there anything like that? Like some, some instance, which was just like, wow, I can't believe I have to deal with this. <laughs> Well, so I remember when I was working at the hotels in Orlando, Orlando, especially in the summer, is notorious for its 3 p.m. showers. It just like clockwork around 3 p.m. It just pours for about an hour or two, um, sometimes really bad thunder and lightning. And then it stops. Um, But during that time, it just means that it's not safe to go into the pool. Um, so I would have to walk around the pool and, and try and get the kids out of the water um, and deal with parents who would just get irate with me about why can't we use the pool? We deliberately came to stay at this hotel because you have a pool and we want to swim and it's not fair that you're taking us out of the water. There's nothing to do around here. What? How are we supposed to spend our time? And it's just like, I really can't control the weather. I'm just trying to look out for your safety. Um, and then I guess in our properties recently, there was some flooding. So we had to close the hotel and, and pull people out of there. And Obviously, people understand. Some people are upset because they paid good money for a romantic weekend or um, just for some time away with their family. And and you just kind of have to manage 
different people and different reactions to stuff that happens in life. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, I, th- I think what is really eye-opening for me is that I, I don't think I ever realized the operational side of this role. But you, I mean, the, 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 the things that you're describing are exactly what someone who is operating the hotel might also have to face, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So are there any aspects of this job that you find particularly challenging, notwithstanding all of these things that you just talked about, but uh, overall things that you find challenging? Sure. I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, there's lots of stakeholders that are at the table and that gives rise to numerous potentials for a conflict of interest. And one aspect of the role that I underestimated coming into this job was how much time I spend using power and influence to navigate these conflicts of interest and to resolve them um, in an amicable way with each stakeholder kind of having a different style in which they like to be spoken to and, and dealt with and partnered with. Um, so I have, I have my own particular style in the way I like to operate, but my Hotel management company, for example, prefers to deal with things in a different manner. And so it's just a matter of kind of adjusting in order to get the best possible outcome for the portfolio and and the returns that we're chasing. Um, And so it was very surprising to me how much more important emotional intelligence and people management was in this role versus the intellectual capital and the IQ element that I thought would be the the big component of why I was hired for the role in the first place. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Can you maybe share an example where you've had to sort of change the way you've approached certain people? You don't have to share direct names or anything, but just to give an idea. Sure. I'm uh, so I know I'm speaking a lot about the the hotel real estate space um, because that's obviously what I'm closer to. Um, but a lot of these situations sometimes don't relate to office real estate, for example, but they might. Um, so one example is that a hotel management company is typically compensated on, they get like a, a base management fee, which is calculated off of total revenues generated at the hotel. So that's all of the the bedrooms that are sold, the food and beverage that's sold, if there's any spa treatments that the hotel is offering. And so there's sometimes less incentive for the management company to care about the bottom line, to care about the cost structure that they're putting in place to operate the hotel. And so that's a conversation that we do have to have every now and then um, when we get monthly performance results and see that the margin isn't as good as I thought it could be, or we're overspending on payroll where there doesn't seem to be a need. And so it's it's having that conversation, but in a in a sensitive manner. And, and also when it comes to capital expenditure, um, obviously it's in the hotel management company's best interest to spend on things that will impact the guests and, and therefore drive the guests to spend more money as opposed to fixing the boiler that needs to be fixed but hasn't exactly broken yet yeah 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 okay well that's a great example so thanks a lot for sharing that um so yeah i think now i just have a few more questions from the point of view of people who might be interested in exploring the space further so first of all in your opinion what kind of person do you think would really enjoy this job like would would love working and doing what you're doing 
uh, so I guess, as I mentioned, emotional intelligence is incredibly important. So if you enjoy interacting with people and essentially managing people, although people who really aren't your direct reports, um, which takes a, a special kind of of influencing skills, then this is absolutely the role for you. If you kind of, if you're looking for like a general management type of role where you want to manage a PNL, again, this is a great opportunity. So when we were in business school, a lot of my classmates wanted to go and work for branded companies for Amazon and marketing roles just so they could have that PNL. Um, so this is another way to, to get to that PNL type of responsibility. Hmm. Real estate in general, if you just if you enjoy seeing something tangible and 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 being able to kind of touch and feel what you're working with, I used to work in the energy industry, and that was really frustrating because I never saw an oil field in my career. Okay. Um, so it's it's less it's less tangible, it's less exciting because you're not interacting with it at its core on a day-to-day basis. Although you're paying gas prices every day, so I guess that's your <laughs> touch point. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, and uh, generally, how is the success of someone in this role measured? So, like in your case, are there any success KPIs? I think what people are looking for is generally to see the valuation improve quarter on quarter, year on year. That's my ultimate KPI. How I get to that point is, mm-hmm. I guess, a few sub KPIs managing investment, managing the investment that's put in. So it it doesn't look good on me if every capital project we overspend. Um, And so being able to kind of manage projects so that if we overspent on one, fine, it happens. But where can you take the the money out of a different project um, to kind of come back to base neutral? Prioritizing what's important rather than focusing on the pennies, focusing on the the millions in order to see the the biggest drive in returns. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that helps a lot. And what is the typical background for this role? Is is it mostly MBAs or do you also have other backgrounds? Um so like I said at the beginning, I'm an anomaly. Most of my colleagues studied finance and real estate finance in undergrad, and then went on to work either on the sell side or the buy side or on the debt side. So CBRE, Savills, JLL are um, big companies to start at in the initial stages of your career because they offer so many different types of services. So it's an opportunity to really explore what part of real estate is most exciting to you. Those who knew that they wanted to work in private equity rather than real estate, they kind of went the investment banking or the the leverage finance route at an investment bank to then kind of find themselves in a position to interview for a private equity type of role. But to end up at a real estate private equity, they were probably working in real estate investment banking or real estate leveraged finance. Hmm. Um, I would say maybe 25% of the people I know in the space are MBAs. Um, the rest maybe got a master's in finance or a master's in real estate to supplement their undergraduate 
degree. Okay, got it. But you can't enter private real estate, private equity directly. So you have to either have prior experience in real estate in some sort of operational role or a finance role, and then you get into it. Or and then maybe after that, you even have some sort of uh, investment banking or something like that before you go, get on the real estate, private equity side. Yeah, I think the popular route into private equity has traditionally been two years at investment banking, although I hear that's kind of shrunk to like a year or 18 months in banking. Um, And then the private equity companies start recruiting at these banks quite heavily. Real estate's a little bit different. I think their sources of candidates come from a, a, a wider variety of places than just the banks. So it depends on what type of private equity strategy you're looking to pursue. Right, right. It's interesting because from what you're describing, it's clear that you don't have to recruit for these firms directly just at school. There's a lot of lateral hiring out of these banks and all also. Or in case of real estate, private equity, they might be looking at some other areas also to source their candidates. So what is the best way to apply? So as, as a candidate, how do I sort of how do I get into Marathon or one of these firms? So I guess if we go back to your previous question, it does differ if you're looking to go into private equity straight out of undergraduate versus out of MBA. So out of business school, you can definitely go direct and interview with private equity funds directly. But your experience prior to business school and during business school will will be important. So then to answer your last question, if you're looking to go into private equity out of undergraduate and you've been at an investment bank, most likely the recruiting firms will have found your name by now and and should (laughs) hopefully be calling you. Um, And if they haven't, um, I think the best way to help yourself get into um, their line of sight is to find someone who has been in touch with who has been contacted by these recruitment firms and to try and get a reference back to you rather than reaching out directly to the recruitment agencies. I find that often there's a little bit more success with being referred. Um, So you might want to try that route. And then if you're looking at it while you're at business school, you're obviously surrounded by a bunch of classmates who came from these funds. So that's your, your best place to start finding classmates who might be able to introduce you to the people they used to work with, referencing you to their former bosses, helping you understand the landscape a little bit better and and kind of zero in on what exactly you're looking for. Do you want an acquisition role? Do you want an asset management role? Are you sector agnostic or do you have a a preference sector-wise or a background in a particular sector that'll help you um, sell yourself Um, Do you want to do venture capital, early stage investing? Do you want to do leverage buyouts? Do you want to do something in the middle? So I would really leverage your classmates to to help you evaluate these questions. And given how competitive this space is, do you recommend any ways in which candidates can stand out? Uh, Unfortunately, pedigree is is often quite, Hmm. quite the number one thing that funds and recruiters look at. So go to the best schools, um, which I know doesn't always help. Um, Your prior experience, um, your 
familiarity with financial modeling, your excitement about financial modeling is is very much appreciated and, and looked to, but more so your commercial acumen, being able to step away from that financial model and, and step out of the weeds of the, the various assumptions flowing through your model and think about the bigger picture, the markets, where particular sec- sectors are, are headed and where the opportunities are, being able to show prior business experience, having worked at a startup, having started up your own company, showing that you understand the nuts and bolts of, of a business are all kind of things that will help sell yourself and set yourself apart. Yeah. So this is very, actually very interesting. And I would imagine that things like showing your interest or your acumen for financial modeling or uh, understanding this commercially, how do you, you can show that in an interview. How do you show that before you actually get the interview? If you don't have the prior experience, well, okay, so first of all, if you have prior experience, so if you've worked in investment banking or uh, another in the finance industry and in another type of role, your CV uh, is is the first place to show that experience. You might want to keep like a a, a track record um, section of your your CV, which highlights the transactions that you've worked on and the types of analysis that you've had to do on each of those transactions. An IPO is a different type of modeling from a leverage buyout versus helping out with the mergers and acquisitions. Whether you're on the merger side, that the, sorry, the the company buying a company or the company that's being sold. If you haven't worked previously in a role where you can show financial modeling and financial analysis experience on your CV, then finding opportunities to do that outside of your date job is usually valuable. So using LinkedIn or social media to write about particular topics, finding ways to get published um, that you can point to in your CV, finding investment opportunities that you can consult in, um, or if you have the capital, go after yourself. Um, so you can point to that in your CV. I think those are just some ideas off the top of my head. Oh, these are great. Okay, no, these, this is very helpful. All right, so are there any resources that you might recommend for people just to learn more about the space, both from the point of view of learning more about the space as well as uh, maybe even for recruiting, interviews? Gosh, I haven't done this in a while. There are real estate, private equity sources of information out there, but not as much as there is about private equity in general. So I would probably start your search with with the more general private equity space. There's one website in particular that is escaping my memory right now, but they do a very good job of answering all sorts of questions people have as they're looking to explore. There's private equity recruitment here in the UK. There's mergersandinquisitions.com. That's more of a US type of resource. Headhunters or recruitment companies in the US are a good source of information. And your classmates, if you're at business school or your co-workers if you're at an investment bank are also quite helpful and i i google everything (laughs) (laughs) no definitely you should definitely google everything uh yeah and if you if you do remember the name of that 
uh, website. Maybe you can just send it to me later and I can include them in the show notes. Include the link. Yeah, I think it's mergers and inquisitions. They do a lot about how to get a private equity job. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot, Zahara. This was really, really helpful. I, I personally learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners did also. Is there any other advice you'd like to share before we call it an episode? I guess just reflect very carefully on who you are and what you're looking for and try to put the compensation aside for a little bit and think outside of salary what's important to you in your job and what kind of career you're looking to pursue. So if you do like to jump from deal to deal and don't really like to see anything through kind of from beginning to end, then acquisitions is definitely for you. But if you think you have more of a general manager kind of leaning and and want to kind of get involved in the nuts and bolts of the business, maybe asset management might be for you. Or maybe you need to find a fund that will let you do both. Um, and so that might mean that you're not necessarily working at a Blackstone and, and you can't put that name on your CV, but you're getting the type of experience that you'll ultimately thrive on when you're being asked to work at 2 a.m. in the morning um, <laughs> or on a long weekend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot, Zahara. Thank you so much for your time on a weekend. I hope you enjoy your remaining Sunday. While you nope. over um, the... Thank you for reaching out, Sonali. I hope this has been helpful. Oh, this was. Thank you so much. And I mean, it sounds like you guys are, there's a lot of discussion going on around Brexit. So that's going to be keeping you occupied for a while, I think. But uh, Intellectually challenging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Sure. Bye. So that was Zahara on real estate private equity and especially the asset management side of real estate private equity. This sounds like a very interesting role that blends the strategic side of finance with the operational side of running something and managing it on a day-to-day basis. So if that sounds exciting to you, this definitely sounds like a role that is worth exploring. Of course, if you have any questions at all for Zahara or for me, you can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. Of course, if you enjoy listening to the show, if you enjoy what we are doing, you can subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Simply search for Learn, Educate, Discover and you'll find us. And of course, while you're at it, please leave us a review. It really honestly means a lot. You can find our website at learneducatediscover.com, which lists all of our prior episodes as well as show notes for these episodes and some useful resources. So definitely check out our website and you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for your time and until the next one. Bye bye.